0: 31. Consecration of kings springs from the same root. There never was a more meaningful and honorable ceremony, or more exactly, profession of faith. The pontiff's finger had always touched the forehead of rising sovereignty. The many writers who have seen in these august rites only the workings of ambition, or even a deliberate conspiracy of superstition and tyranny have spoken against the truth, nearly all even against their own conscience. This question deserves study. Sometimes sovereigns have sought consecration and sometimes it sought them. Others have been seen to reject it as a sign of dependence We are acquainted with sufficient facts to judge correctly on this score, but it would be necessary to distinguish carefully the men, the periods of history, the countries, and the forms of worship. Here, it is sufficient to emphasize the general and eternal opinion which invokes the divine power at the establishment of empires. 32. The most famous nations of antiquity, especially the more serious and wise, such as the Egyptians, Etruscans, Lacedaemonians, and Romans, were precisely those with the most religious forms of government, and the duration of empires has always been proportionate to the degree of influence the religious element gained in the political constitution. The cities and nations most attached to divine worship have always been the wisest and longest lasting, just as the most religious ages have always been the most distinguished by genius. 33. Religion alone civilizes nations. No other known force can influence the savage. Without referring to antiquity's decisive proofs on this point, we can find tangible evidence in America. For three centuries, we have been there with our laws, our arts, our sciences, our civilization, our commerce, and luxuries. And what have we gained over the savage state? Nothing. We destroy these unfortunate beings with sword and alcohol. We gradually drive them into the middle of the wilderness until at last they wholly disappear, as much victims of our vices as of our callous superiority. 34. Has any philosopher ever thought to leave his country and its comforts to seek the savages in the forests of America for the purpose of arousing in them disgust for all the vices of barbarism and of giving them a moral system? They have done much better. They have concocted fine books to prove that the savage is man in his natural state. Whom we should all aspire to resemble. Condorcet has said that the missionaries have carried nothing but shameful superstitions into Asia and Africa. With an inconceivable multiplication of folly, Rousseau has said that to him the missionaries seemed scarcely more moderate than the conquerors. Indeed, their Corpheus has had the audacity. But what could he lose, to cast the crudest ridicule upon these peaceful conquerors, whom the ancients would have deified? 35. It is the missionaries, however, who have accomplished this marvel so far beyond human strength, or even human will. They alone have traveled the vast American continent from one border to the other to create men there. They alone have done what secular power dared not even imagine. But nothing of the kind rivals the Jesuit missions of Paraguay. There, the exclusive authority and ability of religion in civilizing men has been most marked. This wonder has been acclaimed, but not sufficiently. The spirit of the eighteenth century and another accomplice spirit have been strong enough to stifle partially the voice of justice and even that of admiration. Perhaps one day, for we do hope these great and generous labors will be resumed, in the heart of a prosperous city founded on some old savannah the father of these missionaries will have his statue. One might read on its pedestal, To the Christian Osiris, whose emissaries have covered the globe, to snatch men from misery, brutishness, and ferocity, by teaching them agriculture, by giving them laws, by teaching them to know God and to serve him, thus taming the unfortunate savage, not by force of arms, Which they never required, but by mild persuasion, moral chance, and by the power of hymns, so that men believed them angels. 36. Consider this legislative order, reigning in Paraguay by the simple superiority of talent and virtue, never deviating from the humblest submission to the legitimate temporal authority, however misguided. At the same time, this order entered our jails, our hospitals, and our quarantine stations to brave the most vile and repulsive forms of poverty, disease, and despair. These very men, who hastened at the first appeal to lie down beside the indigent on their bed of straw, were at ease in the politest circles. They mounted the scaffold to speak the last words to the victims of human justice, and from these scenes of horror hurried into the pulpit to speak vehemently before kings. They held the paintbrush in China, the telescope in our observatories, Orpheus's lyre amidst the savages, and they exalted the entire age of Louis XIV. When now we realize that a despicable alliance of perverse government ministers, raving magistrates, and infamous secretaries has been able in our day to demolish this admirable institution and to congratulate themselves for it, we recall the imbecile who exultingly stepped upon a watch, exclaiming, I'll stop your noise. But what am I saying? An imbecile is no criminal. 37. I have had to dwell principally on the formation of empires as being the most important subject. But all human institutions obey the same rule, being meaningless or dangerous unless they rest on the foundation of all existence. This principle being undeniable, what shall we think of a generation which has thrown everything to the winds, including the very foundations of the structure of society, by making education exclusively scientific? It was impossible to err more frightfully. For every educational system, which does not have religion as its basis, will collapse in an instant, or else diffuse only poisons throughout the state, religion being, as Bacon aptly says, the spice which preserves the sciences from decay. 38. The question so often asked, why a school of theology in every university, is easily answered. The reason is that the universities may exist, and that instruction may not become corrupted. Originally, universities were only schools of theology to which other faculties were attached, as are subjects around their queen. Established on such a foundation, the edifice, of public instruction had lasted until our day. Those who have overturned it among themselves will long repent in vain. A mere child or a lunatic can burn down a city, but architects, materials, workmen, wealth, and above all, time are necessary to restore it. Thirty-nine. Perhaps equally much harm has been done to mankind by those who, while preserving the exterior forms of ancient institutions, are pleased to corrupt them inwardly. Already the influence of modern universities upon morals and the national character throughout most of Europe is quite familiar. In this respect, the English universities. Have preserved a better reputation than the others, perhaps because the English know better how to keep silence or to praise themselves at the right moments, perhaps also because their unusually vigorous public opinion has there more effectively than elsewhere protected these venerable schools from the general curse. However, they must succumb at last. And already, Gibbon's wicked heart has made us some strange disclosures on this point. In brief, to continue with generalities, if we do not return to the old maxims, if the guidance of education is not returned to the priests, and if science is not uniformly relegated to a subordinate rank, incalculable evil awaits us. We shall become brutalized by science, and that is the worst sort of brutality. 40. Creation is not man's province, nor does his unassisted power even appear capable of improving on institutions already established. If anything is apparent to man, It is the existence of two opposing forces in the universe in continual conflict. Nothing good is unsullied or unaltered by evil. Every evil is repressed and assailed by good, which continually impels all existence towards a more perfect state. These two forces are present everywhere. We observe them equally in the growth of plants, the development of animals, the formation of languages and empires, two inseparable things, etc. Probably, human powers extend only to removing or resisting evil in order to separate from it the good, which may then develop freely according to its nature. The illustrious zenati has said, It is difficult to change things for the better. This thought conceals a great meaning under the guise of extreme simplicity. It agrees perfectly with another thought of origin, which alone is worth a volume. Nothing, says he, can be altered for the better among men without God. All men sense this truth, even without consciously realizing it. From it derives the innate aversion of all intelligent persons to innovations. The word reform, by itself and prior to any scrutiny, will always be suspect to wisdom, and the experience of every generation justifies this instinct. We know all too well the fruit of the most attractive speculations of this kind.